I'd like to dedicate this award to all of the women who came before me who never had the chances that I've had, and the survivors and the pioneers and the outcasts, and my blood, my tradition. And I'd like to thank all of the people in this industry who have respected my choices and who have not been afraid of the power and the dignity that that entitled me to. Uh, the incredible cast and crew of Silence and the Lambs uh, that Jonathan put together, and of course, the reason that I'm here, yeah, Anthony Hopkins, quid pro quo doctor, and my guru, Jonathan Demi, not just for his talent, but for his goodness, I promise you. And um, I'd like to thank my, my family and my family of friends, the trusted ones, the circle, and most of all, I'd like to thank my mother, Brandy, my friend, the person who has loved me so much and so well that she taught me an inimitable little mantate fashion to fly away. Thank you, and thank the Academy for embracing such an incredibly strong and beautiful feminist hero that I am so proud of. The census taker once tried to test me. I ate his liver with some fava beans and a nice Chianti. Welcome to Speak All Evil, the podcast you were warned about. I'm Trent, here with Kevin, Kat, and Dave. Hey, guys. Hello. Hello. This week, we're having an old friend for dinner. Talking about Hannibal Lecter, multi-medium fictional franchise star, character of film, television, literature, and more. Uh, A character I would uh, propose is totally different than any other existing film franchise anti-hero of today. Um, but Kat and I picked a couple of films uh, to check out this week. We'll, we'll get to my take on where Hannibal Lecter stands in the fictional universe he inhabits. But uh, for my choice, I wanted to take it all the way back to the very first film portrayal of Hannibal Lecter and uh, first film adaptation of a Thomas Harris novel, that novel being Red Dragon, which was published in 1981, incredibly, uh, and that movie being Manhunter from 1986, directed by Michael Mann uh, from a screenplay by Michael Mann. This is a rental right now. You can't stream this on any of the membership platforms, but uh, it's the same price to own on Google Plus as it is to rent. So I own Manhunter now because, you know, why not? Same same deal. So I've seen it a couple times uh, heading into tonight's episode. This is about <laughs> uh, retired FBI agent Will Graham. Uh, who is lured back into the killer tracking game to help catch the Tooth Fairy Killer, who would rather be called Red Dragon, but he doesn't really quite get his way in this. Uh, They refer to him as the Tooth Fairy. Uh, Detective Graham, or Agent Graham, brought down Hannibal Lecter uh, three years prior, almost uh, got killed in the process, and ended up seeking some uh, mental health treatment. He got too deep into the case. That happens. We'll talk about that, too. I know all about getting too deep into cases. It can really eat you up. <laughs> do, some, do some personal damage to you. Sometimes you get into the mind of these sick people. I think he's talking about an ex-girlfriend. It, this is kind of uh, a one last job, I would classify this. He, he's retired. He's out of the game. He's lured back in. Um, the only thing that isn't quite one last job... 
uh, in the classic sense, there isn't a financial payout necessarily that you know about in this, but it's just the personal satisfaction of using his special talent of getting inside the mind of a killer and a madman uh, to stop further killings. I really enjoyed this movie. This was met with a, a shrug at the time, um, didn't uh, get well received, but um, now has gained stature over the years and become a bit of a minor cult classic. Uh, I had a great time watching this. Kevin, what'd you think? I love this movie. I think it's it's a great one. It's not as good as Silence, I don't think. and But I do think it's better than Red Dragon, the remake, uh, which would come out in 2002 or so. Uh, yeah, I, I love this. I, I'm a huge fan of William Peterson, who plays Will Graham. He would go on to play Gil Grissom from CSI, which is one of the greatest television characters of all time. And I love in this one they talk about... Um, they there's a reference in this in this movie to Will Graham's hearing and in CSI Gil Grissom's character has a de- uh, degenerative disorder that is taking away his hearing which I thought was a, a nice little uh, unintentional nod uh, I love it I love the casting I love Tom Noonan as Francis Dollarhide who is ultimately the red dragon killer or the tooth fairy if you will we know him from The Roost in House of the Devil, some Ty West flicks. We also know him as playing the Frankenstein character in Monster Squad, which I hope someday we get to talk about on this show. Uh, Brian Cox Hannibal is great. We know him from everything. Um, I just I really like the way this movie develops. Like all of the all of the Hannibal movies are long movies. They're all two hours plus. And this one, I thought, was just a very, very good sort of stylized 80s, uh, you know, serial killer film, but also a nice touch and, and toes dip in the water of police procedural, which obviously the whole world is obsessed with now. So, yeah, I think I think other than some of the music, Manhunter has aged very, very well. I think it was inappropriately panned at the time. You know, they made this for $15 million in 1986, and it only made like $8 million back. And it was panned, I think, inappropriately so. I think the cult classic status, I don't know if I would call this a cult classic more than I would call it just a misunderstood movie at the time that is now getting its proper praise. Manhunter was so good. I loved it. I honestly never knew it existed. Um, and I never realized that Red Dragon was a remake, obviously. Um, but holy shit, I loved it so much more than the Red Dragon. Um, obviously, I liked a lot of the actors a little bit more in Red Dragon. Uh, shout out Philip Seymour Hoffman. Um, but I really like the overall feel of this movie, the 80s vibe. Uh, the music was just like a synth Miami Vice party and I was here for that party I wanted to be at that party and I loved William Peterson as Will Graham Daddy Peterson I loved him (laughs) we could say it's double daddy week Um, (laughs) Willie (laughs) Daddy Willie Um, all the forensic stuff was great I, I was a big CSI fan obviously watched all the episodes of Forensic Files uh, even the new ones, which I think hold up. Uh, but I'm a sucker for a nice gotcha moment. 
for sure. And this one definitely had a lot. Like, ooh, we fucking ripped off that piece of paper, but we can see what's underneath. Gotcha! Kind of a situation. Uh, and I thought the Tooth Fairy character, very interesting. Very, very creepy. I thought this actor way creepier than Ray Fiennes or Fiennes, oh, however you say it. I don't know. I don't know. I, I don't know. I think Ray Fiennes was a little too handsome. But this guy I found less handsome. I'm a sucker for a tat for a back piece of, of a tattoo back piece. <laughs> uh, but yeah, I just I thought it was a really great crime thriller. I would watch it four more times this week. I liked it way better than dare I say Hannibal, Red Dragon, obviously not Silence of the Lambs. But we'll get to that one. So yeah, thank you so much for uh, making me watch this. Well, I'll just come out the gate and say that Hannibal is my jam. Just because it's probably mm-hmm. the silliest, goofiest, most graphic <laughs> uh, yeah. of the series. But I do think that uh, Manhunter was kind of like a... It, there was a big avalanche of like smart detective movies in the 80s that I think kind of started with this. Because before this, there was a lot of... like. The cops rough people up and they're the gunslingers that are quick to shoot everybody, death wish and all this kind of like violent stuff where this was a little bit more intellectual. And I do like William Peterson better than Ed Norton as Will Graham. Um, mm-hmm. I think Manhunter's overall just got a scarier tone. I think the the opening uh, is just a super cold open with a synthesizer and like a flashlight going up some stairs and it's immediately ominous and all the way through it has that like synthesizer 80s tone that in itself is so outdated and weird and like Florida that it's also kind of scary. Um, (laughs) My only complaints about this were some of the literal 80s song choices or I don't even know, maybe they were written for the actual scene because sometimes it like talked about like the feelings of the character in the lyrics of the song. And I wasn't into that. Um, and this, this is slow motion that was very questionable to me, uh, in this, but I, I put these things out there because eighties movies can suffer from way worse things than these things. So, uh, if you're afraid of eighties movies, don't be afraid of this movie because I think that it really stands the test of time. I think you made a very important point about the distinction among 80s action-type detective movies because there were so many detective action movies in the 80s of various subgenres. You had like your vigilante, like Dirty Harry stuff. You had your more straight, bang em up like Rambo, Schwarzenegger stuff. There were still like Death Wish sequels in the 80s. Uh, this is totally different from that. This belongs to a little bit different 80s action type genre with movies like uh, To Live and Die in L.A., a little bit more stylized, and and I would give this movie the most credit for sort of introducing the whole CSI, SVU, Criminal Minds, even, even influencing Silence of the Lambs and, and furthering uh, all the influence that that movie had. This really brought you into that whole like criminal profiling true crime even all the true crime stuff today largely goes back to some of the movies like this in the 80s that really got into that aspect and kevin you brought up the real life guy douglas i don't remember his first name who was one of the first big prominent uh criminal profilers john douglas which if you haven't seen 
uh, what's the Netflix show that Fincher did? Mind Mindhunter, which is almost like it's almost like Manhunter. Yeah, exactly. And it's about the same uh, same thing. So yeah, I mean this. Cat brought this up, and I think I love this about this movie. Before I get to that point, Trent, you left out some very important things that were going on in terms of like buddy cop and cop things in the eighties that may have contributed to why this failed, because everybody was obsessed with man show. Miami Vice, but also like Magnum PI was like the biggest show on TV. So if you're like used to getting like a mustachioed Tom Selleck, uh, and then you have to go watch this very serious movie, you're not in the mood. You're not in the mood sure. for it. Beverly Hills Cop, all that yeah. stuff was a little bit more lighthearted than this. Cat nailed it. Like this movie doesn't just have so many gotcha moments; it has so many payoffs. Like the scene where William Peterson is walking around one of the houses of the victims. Uh, because, you know, Red Dragon or the Tooth Fairy is he's slaughtering families, entire families of people. You know, like Dave said, like they'll show someone walking up the stairs with a flashlight. They're much more prolonged scenes than we're used to watching 80s action films or 80s slasher films. But the payoffs are so much better. There's so many good payoffs. Like when he when he, you know, gets in the tree and he's like, you were watching them or when they're trying to solve, you know, what book you know, the note from from uh, the Tooth Fairy in between Hannibal is like, there's just so many cool, slower buildup, like forensic scenes. But every single one of them has like a complete emotional payoff in this movie. And I can't remember thinking of a movie that sort of did that to me before this. I'm sure there are a million examples. I just personally, for me, consuming horror and now becoming a huge fan of true crime. Like this sort of sets the blueprint for how to suck somebody in and be really obsessed with this. Yeah, I mean, I can't think of a movie before this where it's the story, you know, you go from the bumbling cops and all these horror thrillers and then you get to this and it's, you know, putting the puzzle together uh, piece by piece. And it's much more uh, captivating. It's much more highbrow as far as it's just entertaining to watch all the things come together. And usually when they do come together, the killer always seems to have like one step ahead and it's like, oh, fuck. Uh, so I, I love that kind of suspense where you're along for the ride. Francis Dollarhide was played by Tom Noonan, so he was the red dragon in this. Mm. Um, not my daddy Not dragon. your daddy dragon, but I never knew this. He played Frankenstein in the Monster Squad, which I know Trent and Dave will know very well. I'm hoping you have never seen... Never seen it, actually. What? It's canceled. What? Blast. It's canceled. Never seen Monster Squad. No clue. But Tom Noonan would sort of have a resurgence with Ty West uh, being featured in The Roost and in House of the Devil. So that's, uh, I kept wondering, why, do, why does this guy look so familiar? And he has a pretty vast filmography, but uh, having watched House of the Devil at some point last year, like I was like, oh, it's that guy. Um, and also, I mean, this has uh, an awesome cast. I know that you're partial to Philip Seymour Hoffman, as our Freddie Lowndes character, but in this one, it's a young Stephen Lang. I didn't recognize him. I didn't know it was Stephen Lang until I looked up the cast of this. But he's like, he's the the blind guy in Don't Breathe. And Trent, you and I just talked about him on the Patreon. Not That's too crazy. Long ago in VFW, he's so young in this. He looks like a completely different person. He's the gung ho dickhead in Avatar. He's like huge. He's all he is now is like a beefcake all the time. And in <laughs> what? This, yeah. Really? He's That's that, big, that guy? Yeah. Fuck off. And he's like Steven a nerd. Lang. Okay. He's like a nerd in this in this movie. 
Yeah, and his oh, his character in this, I think, is uh, another interesting dynamic with this type of movie. Like reporters, like it's one of two things: either the cops and the FBI are the heroes, and the reporters are like the bottom feeding scumbags, or the reporters are the heroes uh, of the movie, and the cops are like the you know the the sort of the bad guys. There's always like that tension between um, between the media and the law enforcement. This is a solidly law enforcement movie. The media guy is portrayed as a uh, a total jerk. Um, but I, re- I really love the classic character of William Graham, uh, played by William, uh, what's his real name? Peterson. Peterson. William Peterson, right, who was also in To Live and Die in L.A., which I mentioned. But I love the whole classic archetype of the grizzled investigator who has seen too much. He's gone too deep. Uh, you start to question, you know, where is the line between killer and tracker? Where is the line between the psychopath and the profiler? Aren't they really one and the same? And isn't that really how he's able to uh, to track this guy so well and to, to get inside the mind of the psychopath? He must have to, like, share some of those attributes. And the whole idea of, of where that could take someone, I, I love that whole character, and I do identify with that, as I said, sometimes to get in the mind of the, the you know, the sickest criminals that you're out there trying to figure out what they're doing you have to you know you have to go there yourself and this has the classic scene mm-hmm. with him and um dennis farina where where he's like going too far now you know will graham's like you don't tell me when it's over i'll take it as late as i want to take it you know you don't tell him <laughs> when the lights go out you've invited him into this he's going to mm-hmm. tell you when the you lights pulled go him out. back in yeah exactly Exactly, and now you're going to take it as far as he wants to take it. Love that stuff. <laughs> yeah. I feel like this is a really good example of like watching an older horror movie and being like, oh, this is so cliche. Like, what is this? But this is the moment where th- this started the cliches. Like, this started all these tropes. And so it's funny, like, watching back now and being like, oh, this is like the OG for sure. Yeah, and the the reporter thing is interesting too because – there's also like the middle of the road movies where like the cop has a reporter in in his pocket or the reporter's got sure. a cop in their pocket and they're like sharing the info and working secretly in tandem. I think this was probably still a little too early for that maybe. Unless you're in a comedy, I think that probably happened more often in like a Beverly Hills Cop or something like that. Perhaps. Uh yeah, I think it's a good point Trent where it's like it's either the cops are the heroes, reporters are bad, or cops are bad, reporters save the day. It's a, a cat and mouse thing, kind of like uh, in the line of fire, like Malkovich and, and Clint Eastwood. And I like the battle battle of the wits uh, as people are getting killed and the clock is always ticking. I was a fan of Miami Vice growing up, you know, as a young kid. So I, I like that whole like throwback kind of stylized 80s floor, even though it doesn't only some of it takes place in Florida still. It has that whole, like, <laughs> Michael Mann, who was a producer on Miami Vice, has that whole ultra-stylized vibe to it and all the different colored lightings of the different scenes, like all the scenes with, with William Graham and his wife are, like, blue tint, and then, like, the killer, the scenes with the killer are, like, more sort of like a sick green tint. You know, it's kind of doing all this type of stuff. And also on the soundtrack, speaking of the stylized soundtrack, the sort of, like, pseudo-'80s... Uh, I think the band was called the Reds or something. They should have just like gone with Thompson Twins or something like that. But I think there was an original. A lot of the stuff was original compositions. But there's a version of Comfortably Numb. Did you, did you guys notice that by Pink Floyd? I did not. No. no yeah, I did there's not. a whole synth version of Comfortably Numb that plays over 
uh, a certain segment of this. And then, of course, there is the full extended version of Inagata de Vida, which keeps coming up. Well, that's yes. because um, Michael Mann was in correspondence with a convicted killer, Dennis Wayne Wallace, who basically killed a woman he was obsessed with and he barely knew her. But he was convinced that they were meant to be together. And I, I, there's not a lot about this guy for like a true crime obsessed society, especially for a killer with a link to Manhunter. You'd think that the Internet would uh, go down a, a few more rabbit holes. I've read some things that say he killed three or four people out of delusion to keep this woman safe and then eventually just killed her and got caught. But he told investigators that he was convinced that Inagata DeVita was their song, that that was their song. Mm -hmm. And so as Michael Mann was writing letters back and forth from prison with him, he incorporated some of what he had sort of picked up on from Dennis Wayne uh, Wilson uh, or Dennis Wayne Wallace in the movie. The fact that this is a little bit it's kind of extracted from the the other Hannibal stuff in the series. It's kind of standalone, but it makes it kind of like uh, the Marvel Universe because you introduce these characters, then you have different people playing the characters later, and there's a an evolution of the characters and the relationships. And um, I, I think it's pretty complex, and I feel like it could go on for many more movies. Um, I just hope it doesn't get ruined by like some. Oh, there's already a series, isn't there? I think there's it's a the second. Hannibal I think series. there's like two series now. It was ruined. Um, basically, yeah. after Hannibal, which was also wildly successful, like Science of the Lambs that we'll talk about, um, Hannibal Rising came out, which is like a prequel trying to tell the story of Hannibal as a child. I never understood what the hell Thomas Harris was thinking or what was happening, but basically, Dino De Laurentiis, the producer, came to Thomas Harris and said hey, you're going to lose the rights to Hannibal unless you write another book that we could turn into a movie. So Hannibal Rising sucked because Thomas Harris didn't get to sit and kind of gestate on a story. They just had to whip something up so that they could all keep the rights to the actual Hannibal character. And in fact, the, the mm. new series that's on Clarice, I watched a few episodes of. They're, they're, it's not terrible. There's two. Well, the, There's two series? There's Hannibal and there's Hannibal Clarice. is unbelievable. Hannibal is unbelievable, and both William Peterson, yes, way? both William Peterson and Ed <laughs> okay. Norton can eat it because the dude that plays Will Graham in the Hannibal TV series slaughters them both, and Mads Mikkelsen um. as as Hannibal's amazing. But like the rights thing in the in the new one that is it's either on Paramount Plus or Peacock, they can't they can't say the name Hannibal because they don't have the rights to the character. So oh, so on. it's very interesting how oh. they dance around because the series takes place one year after the events of Silence of the Lamps. Uh, so it's it's been interesting so far watching how they dance around this lack of being able to say the fucking word Hannibal. One of the reasons I like Manhunter is that I feel like at a certain point these things when these things become like these franchise characters like I, I would almost compare Hannibal at this point to. Freddy Krueger or like Michael Myers. I, I don't know what I, I can't really think of another like equal comparison to where Hannibal stands in the in the fiction um, anti-hero universe. But I think it would be yeah. close to something like that. Um, yeah. I like Manhunter in part because this is before every movie became this like star studded thing with people like chewing scenery all over the place and just kind of. Um, which is fun, too. And Dave, you mentioned that aspect uh, of Hannibal, like that kind of over the top kind of jump the shark 
ridiculousness kind of sets in. And then you have TV shows where you can't even say the name Hannibal, whatever. So I kind of appreciate this for being way before all that, only five years after the first published novel, which is amazing to me that that's now 40 40 years ago. Imagine in 1981 when Thomas Harris was publishing Red Dragon to think that 40 years later this would be like one of the biggest fictional characters in existence. I think Hannibal is like the closest to bridging what you talked about, Trent, bridging the Freddy Kruegers and the Michael Myers to the Jeffrey Dahmers and the John Wayne Gacy's. I think that's why, that's sort of where he has his own niche is he he can take us to like a slasher fandom and he can take us to an obsession with real life serial killers and the character sort of fits in the middle of those. True. It's true. That's a, that's a good point. I was going to ask if you're a fan of Jeffrey Dahmer, but I, I do see your point. I won't be that obtuse. <laughs> Aren't we all? I am. I, I'm a fan. I think we all have a respect for Jeffrey Dahmer. <laughs> I don't. I don't know no, about. I don't know about respect. Great. <laughs> Obsession. I don't know. There's bones in the Obsession. chocolate. Obsession. Yeah. He worked at a candy factory. He's like a modern day Willy Wonka. <laughs> Dom and Dahmer. I will say, uh, bless this movie, but I think this graced us with the most awkward uh, sex scene that I've had to watch for the podcast. Um, between the beautiful blind woman and. Uh, the Tooth Fairy Killer. It reminded me a little bit of the uh, sex scene in uh, Forrest Gump when he just kind of <laughs> lays there and doesn't know what to do with his come, hands. Come, Forrest, come. <laughs> kind of a situation. Stop! No! Um, no, thank you, please, on that. But anyway, so I, that was the only part I disliked, but it only lasted like a minute and a half. So. I'm glad you brought that up because that's, I think, one of the most unique things about Manhunter is it goes pretty far into the love interest story of the killer. He, mm-hmm. um, The Tooth Fairy falls in love with um, a blind woman. and Joan Allen. Hit- Joan Allen, yeah, yeah in, in his whole kink, the Tooth Fairy kink is like the images, you know, and he uses the mirrors and he takes the pictures and that kind of all relates Do back to see? how they catch him. So he has this whole very earnest, like very sincere romance with this um, blind woman. I, I thought that that was taken so much further than you would ever see. Like, I mean, Buffalo Bill doesn't get anything like that kind of treatment in Silence of the Lambs. You would never like go that far into the sort of more um, human side of the killer. So I thought that was pretty interesting. Until he tries to kill her, of course. Yeah, Right. Well, yeah, that puts a, a, a wrench in that's, things. That's the one aspect of Red Dragon that I think uh, they do better than they do in Manhunter, is Red Dragon really uh, puts a lot more emphasis on that. And I, I've never, I, I don't think I ever read the book Red Dragon, but I'm not sure if that's, you know, if Manhunter is just cutting out Thomas's Harris's content, um, or if Red Dragon is embellishing it. But I will, I will tip my hat to Red Dragon. They do a really good job with that in that movie. But Joan Allen as Reba McLean is fantastic. I mean, they had quite the friggin' cast here. I liked how Red Dragon got more into the, uh, the art, and like the imagery that and the mm-hmm. and the folk the folklore of the Red Dragon that he was obsessed with and had kind of this like, uh, you know, museum mystery thing happening too. Yeah, there's some pretty pretty awesome painting eating, in uh, in Red Dragon. Yeah. <laughs> yes. Oh yeah. Yeah, they don't really spend that much time on that in Manhunter. They kind of gloss that over, just like, I don't know, he calls himself the Red Dragon. Ah, it's a painting. 
We talked about this uh, previously, Trent. You mentioned it. I think there was a reason that you you had talked about it previously. Why they left out a lot of the dragon? Oh, well, they. I no. I mean, they changed the title from Red Dragon to Manhunter because of the financial failure of the movie Year of the Dragon, which was based on a Crichton novel. And so, and also, as you mentioned before, too, all the like action, um, sort of kung fu, ninja, various movies that were coming out with dragon in the title. Bruce Lee was still doing dragon movies. There was like American Ninja Dragon and all this stuff. So they wanted to stay away from that, is my understanding. But it is it is a cool story. And when I you know when I watched Red, the remake Red Dragon, I had to I had to dig it up. And it's based on the Great Red Dragon, which is a series of paintings done in 1805 to 1810 by English poet and painter William Blake. Um, you can you can look it up, but it's been referenced so much. This is particularly uh, focused on his painting, The Great Red Dragon and the Woman Clothed in, in Sun. Um, basically saying it's the devil coming up to consume and, and sacrifice this woman because she has given birth to somebody that will go out and teach the ways of Christ. Um, but, like, there's a lot of references, like pop culture references, like um, King Ghidorah from Godzilla, King of the Monsters of the Godzilla universe, is based on the Great Red Dragon. Um, yeah, it's cool. You, I'm, I, won't, I won't bore you guys with a whole history lesson, but it's a very Too interesting... Too late now. <laughs> um, but also speaking of casting did you guys notice that fucking Chris Elliott shows up in one scene <laughs> yes I forgot yes <laughs> Chris, uh, very young very oh. young Chris. Oh, super young and that was a great two lines that was a great two I don't know lines. he never yeah. brought his hands up on, on, on top of the table but I was waiting for him <laughs> yeah. to use his strong hand <laughs> strong hand very convincing, like twenty-year-old forensics expert. He gets like two lines at the table. Yeah, go on to the, the strange place to see Chris Elliott. <laughs> he kept us on our toes. I loved it. Um, casting. Uh, I'll just throw out the rest of my bullshit here. Uh, this, like, like any movie that we talk about, there's so many people that almost ended up being the roles. So Will Graham. Uh, I think it was Dino De Laurentiis. He wanted uh, Richard Gere or Mel Gibson, and Michael Mann was very set on William Peterson. Um, Hannibal, they actually approached Brian, uh, Brian Dennehy, who I didn't realize Brian Dennehy passed away in April of last year. So RIP Brian Dennehy. And Dennehy, being a gentleman, said, no, you need to go to this, uh, this play that my friend Brian Cox is doing right now. He's going to be perfect for Hannibal. Uh, it all worked out great for Dennehy because he would end up playing John Wayne Gacy brilliantly in the made-for-TV movie To Catch a Killer, which if you haven't seen, find a way to see it. It's the best Gacy I don't know film. if he really won that draw. I've never heard of that TV movie. Well, I, I, I don't, I don't I mean, know if I'd say it worked. I don't know how well it worked out I don't for know. Good, good gentleman move on Brian Dennehy's part, just saying, you know, hey, how about you uh, check out my friend Brian Cox. I think he's going to be better.
cat obviously picked the best one of all time. That's right, everyone. It's Silence of the Lambs. Bye-bye. <laughs> yeah, round of applause. Thank you so much. Is that even a lamb? Yes. <laughs> Clarice Starling, a top student at the FBI Academy, is tasked by Jack Crawford to interview Hannibal Lecter, a brilliant psychiatrist and violent psychopath who is serving life in prison for various acts of murder and cannibalism. She hopes that he can give her insight on the identity of Buffalo Bill, a serial killer who has been kidnapping and murdering young women across the Midwest. But soon, this trainee might be closer to the case than she bargained for. Ooh. Oh. <laughs> Silence of the Lambs is one of my favorite movies, not horror movies, just movies of all time. So I was very excited to find out this week's uh, theme. It's one of my sick day movies, like the one you just like throw, and you're like, I don't care, and just like throw something on, I just need to be comforted. For some reason, Silence of the Lambs is one of my comforting movies. I'm not really sure why. I think Jodie Foster has something to do with it. Um, maybe it's like the soothing sounds of Anthony Hopkins, or Jodie's southern drawl that just soothes, soothes my soul. I don't know what it is, but... I love it. It's a great true crime story about a fucking female agent cracking the case, uh, but also has that horror element of the very smart psycho cannibal and serial killer who skins ladies for his own personal suit. Um, Obviously, Anthony Hopkins is amazing in the role of Hannibal Lecter, and Foster is so talented being a strong but also vulnerable FBI agent. I loved it. Um... I will now have Goodbye Horses stuck in my head for the rest of, w- of the week, which I don't hate. And it also fosters one of my favorite quotes, which would be, oh, wait, was she a great big fat person? Yeah, she was a big girl, sir. I just do that all the time, and I just love it. It's fun at parties. What did you guys think? Well, two things about uh, your love and your passion for this movie mm. is, one, just then when you started... I was like, I can picture Cat doing like a school report on like Silence <laughs> of the Lambs. Like that is that the kind of kid you were? Like, oh, I yeah. did my report on serial killers. Um, uh, and and the other that thing that definitely happened one time. I definitely did a <laughs> I I did oh, a report did? Wow. on a serial killer wow. book, and then my mom got mad at me. She was like, "Where did you even get that book?" I'm like, "Mom, you took me to Barnes and Noble. I picked it out. You said it was okay, and then it was." It's real. Wow. Nice. Thank you. You know me. And the other, uh, I think that you're a dead ringer for Jodie Foster as Clarice yes, in this. Thank you. Really? I thought I think you look just like her, yeah. Oh my god. That's like the nicest thing you guys have ever said to me. I'm surprised no one said it to you before. I, I thought that when I watched this. I almost texted you to be like, Is it okay if I say on the show that you look just like Jodie Foster in Silence of the Lambs? Oh my god, you guys Say it over and over again, please. <laughs> Trent, just put that on a loop for uh, like five Kat minutes. Smith as Clarice. Uh, yeah, I, I love this movie. It's uh, super classic. Uh, the time when it came out, I feel like it added a seriousness to horror movies. Uh, it was, it was kind of like a household name. It was huge, and it wasn't cheesy. It wasn't stupid. It didn't make horror movie buffs look like idiots 
Like I'm always concerned with these stupid lowbrow movies. Uh, this is a very highbrow, intellectual, uh, sophisticated horror movie with like hit it out of the park cast. Um, I really have nothing bad to say about this movie. Um, it set a huge amount of movies into motion in a whole style. I feel like there's 100 movies on Netflix and Prime and Hulu right now that is somehow they somehow take something from this storyline or these characters or this this universe that has been created by Thomas Harris. And this is the this is the epitome of the the entire the entire series is this is like the the apex best one in my opinion i i love how fun hannibal is but for just a great movie silence of the lambs is like one of the best ever cat did you say thick day or you said sick day sick day oh sick day thick day i thought, I thought for some reason what would a thick day i, I, I don't know was it used to like comfort i don't know Heavy. like it's like putting your sweatpants like i don't know that just what, what, soft pants. What it sounded like. I, I didn't. I didn't catch the. Um, oh, I've had thick days already. Right. <laughs> I didn't catch. I got to admit, That's, this I, is not one of those movies. <laughs> <laughs> Woo! Is she a big girl, Clarice? Broad to the hips. Is she a big girl? Roomy, <laughs> standing there with a good bag and your bad shoes, trying to hide the West Virginia backwoods patois. But the boys got to you early, didn't they, Clarice? Fumbling the fingers, poking and parting the backseat of a coal miner's car until you can only dream of getting out, getting all the way to the FBI. <laughs> uh, Academy Award goes to you. This is a great Daddy one. Daddy of the week. Uh, this is a rental right now. Actually, you can stream it on Fubo or uh, Showtime if you have those memberships. This is a rental. Um, I'm kind of buy it. I can't believe Jonathan Demi made this movie, who is a name that I recognize mostly from doing the Talking Heads movie, Stop Making Sense. That was like Jonathan Demi's like big mm. claim to fame in the 80s. He's done a bunch of other um, like rock documentaries too. So this is kind of a weird one in the catalog and every single scene in this movie is like iconic right from the get-go. The The scene of, of uh, Clarice going through the FBI training cadet, um, the course where she's running, like jumping over the um, obstacles and things like that. Like that's been satirized and tributed and homaged in like everything since then. And every scene after that is just like something you've seen uh, 10 takes on since then. The whole thing from beginning to end is just so standard now that it's a really, really fun watch. I, I was actually happy to see this. Hadn't seen it in many years, and uh, it's a great one. I put this movie on, and I'm still wowed by it. But I know every single scene that's coming. I know every piece of dialogue. I'm anticipating it, like, so excitedly, so I don't care that I already know it. It's like... It's like one of your favorite songs. You've sung it a thousand times. You know all the words. You know every single time the drums are going to hit. You know every bass note on it. But you still fucking listen to it over and over and over again. And like Demi, Trent, that I, I don't think I ever really thought about the fact that he was the director. This guy got his start with Roger Corman. His first film was in 1974, and it was like a woman's in prison exploitation flick called Caged Heat. Oh, who would have yeah, ever yeah, thought right. that he was gonna? <laughs> yeah, who would have thought he was gonna come up and do Silence of the Lambs? And good for him because then he would go on to do like Philadelphia, The Manchurian Candidate. Like this opened the door for him to do some really great movies. But this isn't how I initially wanted to like 
give my take, but Trent, you just inspired me. Like all of the way it's directed is fucking brilliant from the way that anytime Clarice is talking, she's looking at the camera. And anytime there's so many facial close-ups in this of people talking, but anytime it's not Clarice, they're looking just off camera so that you are thinking they're looking at Clarice. And Demi did that on purpose to pull you into her perspective, to get you super, super close to her. So she's looking at you every time, and then other characters are like looking off camera. Uh, he just did a, a lot of a, a lot of really good things. Um, I think the the character of Buffalo Bill, um, I mean, some might argue he's daddy of the week. I mean, mm. you know, would you fuck me? I'd fuck me. Um, that's he's just got a, cum gutters. Okay. It's a really it's a it's a really good character. Um, <laughs> it's a good character, and and it, I, I, we I know that all of us that are into like you know real life serial killers, we can pull apart all of the ones that inspired him. But just a great, you know, coming out performance by Ted Levine. <laughs> um, well, I didn't mean it that way. Like, just a, like a, a great career-making performance Debut. by Ted Levine. Um, who would go on to star in so many other things. Um, he actually does a great, like, Hunter S. Thompson impression of a character in this indie horror flick called Banshee Chapter. Uh, that's pretty fun, if not entirely confusing. Uh, but th- hey, hey, I- I- I'm with you guys on this. This is one of my favorite movies of all time. It's flawless. I mean, we can talk about the fact that it it won the four majors at the Academy Awards. We always complain about horror at the Oct- at the Oscars, but this got best director, best uh, best screenplay, uh, or I'm sorry, best film, best screenplay, uh, best actor, and best actress. I think the one thing you have to think about is that in at the 91 or 92 Oscars, whenever it happened, there must have been a lot of really angry uh, male actors that had some good performances that year because Anthony Hopkins won this, and he, o- he only had 25 minutes of screen time. So you probably had That's some wow. actors out there that were nominated that were like, man, I killed it for like two hours and 25 minutes, and they're like, and the Oscar goes to the guy that was on screen for 25 wow. minutes out of two hours. But you don't even realize that that's it. That's I how good it is. That's why he that deserved it. it. Exactly. Oh. He sticks with you. Absolutely. Um, I think the movie, it just kind of sets the tone for me of just like what I was getting into. You know, the first, one of the first scenes you see of Clarice, you know, she's running through like doing the obstacle course, but then she gets called into this office and you're just kind of thrown like into her world. You know, she's waiting for the elevator. She's a tiny little lady. And all of a sudden it opens up and it's just, you know, six foot tall of, of elevator full of six foot tall FBI like students. And she's just like, well, excuse me, got to get in here, you know, got to go talk to the big boss. It's like that sets it up. And then there's the scene where they're at the funeral home and she's the one to be like, y'all, everybody get out of the room. We have to do an autopsy and like all the dudes are pissed. And so that kind of just like sets the tone of what she's dealing with as a female, you know, FBI student to agent kind of a situation. So I, I just appreciated that. Yeah, this this set the tone for. Uh, so much to follow, including all of the various uh, aspects of the Clarice character. This is like pretty far ahead of its time for 1991, and people are still largely kind of like doing this movie today, I would say. My least favorite 
um, kind of impression of this or parody of this is Stewie Griffin from <laughs> from Family Guy. He's he's very much <laughs> he is he's very much like Hannibal. I think they do actually do a Hannibal shtick at one point, but he's his mannerisms and his like upper crust uh, sophisticated talk reminds me of that. He kind of he kind of kills it for me, but um, I love Anthony Hopkins in this. He's amazing. I do. I do want to correct myself. It's the big five that this movie won. It won best director, best screenplay, best film, best actor, and best actress. So it cleaned up. The only other movies to have done that were in 1934, which the movie was called. It happened one night, and then 1935, one flew over the cuckoo's nest. It was really fun to watch this in in uh, conjunction with Manhunter because. You really start to get like the continuity being the first two, you know, like this is so long ago now uh, compared to what's happened in the like handleable friction, uh, fiction, fiction, friction universe. Um, you really get like the continuity of of everybody has to go back to Hannibal every time there's a new killer and like ask him what's going on. But that's become kind of a, a trope in any like crime procedural thing where you're talking about serial killers. But in real life, you know, people like John Douglas, that's what they were doing. They were going back to Ted Bundy. They were going back to previous killers when they had a new killer that they were trying to get into the mind of. So that's not like, you know, really that far out there from what was really happening at the time. Uh, and an- another thing about some of these procedural movies that get into the the sort of technical side of it a little bit more that I think is interesting is that you have some of this um, technology, this kind of um, forensic technology that kind of breaks out onto the scene and becomes uh, the sort of like coin of the realm. But then like 20 years later, you realize it was all bullshit. Like, for example, um, do you guys know about the like the blood splatter um, science it's total you know bullshit. About that? Oh, it's total bullshit. From the yeah, it was all bullshit. Yes. It was all bullshit. Fiber all evidence. Bullshit. Mm-hmm. Yeah, same as um, uh, with the arson. A lot of the arson science now is like being totally like yeah. thrown out the window. Like, yeah, I don't know. That was just all crap. But at the time, these things like can be very state of the art, and then they just make their way into mm-hmm. every movie. And uh, this definitely did some of that. Obviously, I'm not a proponent of the death penalty. Reasons being, science changes. It might not all be right. You know, they might have humans are still humans where it's still humans doing this work and error comes from that but also serial killers are their own fucking breed and they can absolutely help in real life to get into the mind and find other serial killers so just like keep them alive see what happens true they're a valuable source of information for the future yes you just don't want to have to walk the row if you can help it Ah. Uh. I shan't walk any row. I was kind of taken aback at how graphic the uh, MIG scene really. I didn't remember oh, give, oh, quite Migs. how graphic that scene was. I was like, wait a minute. Uh, uh, what what page am I on? Hold on. <laughs> Anthony Hopkins' character like was so good at, he, at just being smart and outwitting people that he talked MIGs. <laughs> into death <laughs> just swallowing his own tongue you just talked him into it i try to do that every day <laughs> every time someone disses me i try to do that when i retort <laughs> it's a magic combination of words that makes someone swallow their tongue lector goes to like very dark places very quickly like he just like is asking clarice about her childhood and she says that you know after her parents died she went to a horse ranch and right away out of the gate he's like 
We are forced to perform fellatio on a ranch horse, Clarice. <laughs> no. Sodomized, like just going to the, like the worst stuff right out of the gate. It's like, well, it wasn't that bad, man. You're, geez. Yeah. Well, he even breaks it out when like he's talking to the senator and like they're just having like, you know, he's giving her info and he's like, did she suck your tits? You know what I mean? It's just like, he's just, he has no, he's, there's no stopping point for him. He's that friend at the party. Yeah. He's, <laughs> hey, there's worse friends to have. Probably not. I would, mix. Maybe mix. Uh, it's depending if he's having you for dinner or if he's having you for dinner. <laughs> Silence of the Lambs, the one thing it doesn't do that Manhunter does and a lot of these types of movies do is it, it doesn't do the whole, like, getting too far into the case for Clarice. At no point do you have any feeling that, like, Clarice is in too deep or it's, like, messing with her mind that much. She's, she's like, the most put-together... Um, very pretty unflappable throughout this whole entire thing, even when she's confronting Buffalo Bill by herself mm-hmm. at the end, which is a, one of the great fake-out scenes of all time, by the way. <sighs> that whole climax yeah. with a raiding yeah. the house, and she's that is just like so good, but they never kind of play that angle with her. She's not like the grizzled... I mean, she's, by definition, she's a cadet. But you don't have that kind of like... It doesn't really mm-hmm. seem like it's ever getting in her head that much. She's yeah. not like... You know, ending up at a dive bar, you know, drowning mm-hmm. the uh, thoughts of all it the terrible later. things. Oh, Thank you, it sir. happens later when yeah. Julianne Moore don't plays, even here's uh, the... Clarice. Whatever. Oh, but right. she's gri- but she gets grizzled then in, when she becomes oh, Clarice. Okay, but I I, I like that different. Deep, I like you know I mean? that makes me more interested in seeing. That. I've never seen the. Uh, oh God, ones. Hannibal's great, and like Dave said, no. it's what, it's no. silly. You don't but... like her as. Not only do I not like Julianne Moore as Cleary Starling, I hated Julianne Moore as Cleary Starling, Starling wow. because in the entire the entire Silence of the Lambs, she is fucking straight face. When does she cry? One, right, that's what I'm saying. None. Not at all. There's no yeah. tears. And then you fucking go into Hannibal, and I looked into it. Julianne Moore was available. Jodie Foster was working on some other project. She should have put that on hold. Someone should have put that movie on hold so she could reprise this role. Because I absolutely would have believed a Jodie Foster crying as Cleary Starling instead of Julie. She's like dropping tears as soon as the movie starts. I'm like, that's not my Clarice. My Clarice wouldn't do that. <laughs> and that's not how I want to feel because it's not my character. But it felt like she was mine. And I felt bamboozled and upset the, mm. you don't just go from fucking being stole you know stone face being like thank you sir may i sure. use your that's phone the fucked please up thing. to fucking uh, you know yeah. i don't know and julianne moore just cries in every movie she's in good for her just was she flexing she can, that she can cry i don't give a shit clarice wouldn't cry mm. manhunter bombed right. and it only took five years for silence of the lambs to come out and get like a 19 million dollar budget to then crush it with 273 million dollars at the box office in 1991 mm. why did it take because the book was why, so successful why did it why take 10 years for a sequel like if they greenlit uh, a silence of the lambs you know and they'd already rolled the dice on thomas harris and it didn't work why did it take 10 years for hannibal to come out i've never understood that well i was surprised the silence of the lambs came out at all after Manhunter flopping, but the the thing that makes it is the dialogue and like you were saying, you have it memorized 
like a song. Uh, that's what a lot of movies that were huge in that time. Mm. That's what their value is, is they have these like hooks. And there's so many in this movie. Uh, it's like a, a pulp fiction. Uh, right. You know, the dialogue just carries the whole thing. Right. And that's how it's every inside joke in 1991 was a reference to silence. Yes. The totally. There's two yeah. things that I think Trent lo- must love about this movie. One, microfiche. Trent, you got your microfiche. Scene. Oh, yeah, I forgot. Yes, microfiche. Boom, you got right that. there. I yes. pictured you just yeah. being so. And there's the, the Mandela effect. There's the quote was, hello, Clarice. It's what everybody was saying after this movie. It was like the most quoted thing. He doesn't actually say that in this movie. And they actually have like a wink, wink, nod, nod in Hannibal when mm-hmm. he does pick up the phone or he does call her at some point and he says, Hello, Clarice. But in uh, in silence, it's something like uh, like Good evening, Clarice. Or I could like I could hear right. you coming, Clarice. Mm. How does he just that says ha- her how name do you think so many that times. Happens? Because he just says her name so many times that it, it's and this is so long ago now that people just like memory is not that reliable. That you know your memory is very fallible, and we all remember things like totally wrong a lot of times. Sure. But we don't know it. Which is why we shouldn't have the death penalty. I feel like it's like the whisper game. It's like so many people, once it's in, like, it's a household thing that people say, the more people say it, people that haven't even seen the movie are, are quoting the movie. You know what I mean? So, mm-hmm. You guys ever get too deep into it's a case? Diluted. You guys ever get so deep into a case that, into an investigation, it just, like, gets worse and worse, and you, you, know, you wonder what kind of toll it's taking on you to have to, you know, deal with the things that you're finding out? Yeah, it's called this show. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> I think there's a price. There's a price to getting into the mind of a maniac, you know. Oh, I'm it in. does get dark. If we want, you know, sometimes we'll have a little stretch. We pretend it's all for cat. Like, oh, cat needs a break. We'll lighten it up a little <laughs> bit. But it does get dark when you, uh, you know, like, especially if we're watching like four movies a week at one point there, and it would be like four mm. brutal movies. And, and it's hard to not carry that around with French, you. French, French week. 